Something about my daughters. <laughs> Next time, finish with a flourish. If you're going to take the tumble, stick the landing, right? All right. <clears throat> Have you ever had something that, that you were just so excited about that it, it overwhelmed you, it just blew your mind, but when you tried to explain it to somebody else to get them to share in that excitement, they just couldn't seem to get it? I mean, it's tough to be able to, to take what, what is moving you and get someone else to really comprehend that and be moved in the same way. Kind of like being in love. If you've been in love, then you might remember being in that spot where everybody thought you were weird because you were so caught up in the being in loveness of being in love, right? So you're, you see this person and they're just magical. They walk into the room and, you know, everything's like, oh, it's awesome. And everybody else is like, okay, they're cool. It's whatever. It's maybe even more like first time you hold your newborn child. I don't mean a newborn child, because that could be good or bad, you just, you know. But when it's your child, I will never be able to convey what it felt like as a 20-year-old young man to see the face of my son. Everything changed. And then we had four more. And each time, it took my breath away. I can't convey that feeling to you. I thought I knew. I was a, a fairly emotive individual and, and fairly empathetic. And so what, when I contemplated these things, okay, my sister's laughing over here because you know, I would cry at Kodak commercials back in the day, Hallmark commercials. Yeah, that's me. I'm that guy. Come at me. Anyway, so I, I thought I got it until it was my child. And I had no idea how overwhelming that was. The fear, the responsibility, the glory, the love. I had never known how deep that went and I could never tell somebody else but when you get it you get it if you've ever tried to explain the Grand Canyon to a child it's tough and you're standing there at the edge and, and maybe you've got that newborn baby with you and you're in awe of this majesty of nature on the edge of the Grand Canyon and, and you see the depth in front of you and the awe of understanding just how vast this is and the impending doom should I go over that cliff and that baby's like gah, gah, gah. no idea they're not capable of that this is why Little children have no fear. We have to educate them into healthy and appropriate fear. They could go play in the street and have no idea that a car could crush them. They could walk into fire because it's pretty and have no capacity to understand the dangers or the glories 
or the wonder. If you are a wife who's ever tried to take your husband to the ballet, you might understand this. You're watching it, you're moved and stirred, and he's like, I don't get it. That's the same experience I have trying to get my mother-in-law to grasp the glory and balletic nature of the wondrous game of football. She's like, okay, that's your thing. Paul understands how hard it is to convey a true sense of wonder and amazement to someone else. So here in this passage, he is praying for that very thing. That, that these people, that the church, would have their capacity to comprehend it changed by the power of God. That they would be filled with such awe at the indescribable love of God that they would simply overflow with rejoicing. That's my prayer for us this morning. That we would be filled with such awe at the indescribable love of God that we would also overflow with rejoicing. As we look through this passage, as you are reading and, and comprehending the last portion of chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 in the book of Ephesians. The core reality that, that we want to get from this, what Paul is trying to get across, what the Lord is saying through the pen of the apostle, is that when God fills us with the love and presence of Christ, His glory overflows from us. And we are moved. Paul wants us to get a sense of jubilant rejoicing. That when we think about just how incredible, unbelievable, overwhelming, and amazing the grace of God is to us, that it would just come pouring out of us so that God would be glorified by us getting it. Let's take a look at what he says here. As we look at Paul's prayer and embrace it as our own mindset, notice in verse 1, before we even really get into the content of it, uh, Paul, if you will remember, interrupted the flow of his own thought in the first part of chapter 3. He says, in light of everything I talked about in chapter 2, specifically in light of the fact that, that God has has placed us in Christ and is taking us as individual stones from various backgrounds, different shapes, different colors, not cut uniformly, but naturally different and unlike one another. He is building us into his temple together, the church displaying the manifest glory of God. For this reason, he says, I, I, wait a minute, let me, let me talk to you a, minute, a little bit about my calling. Made me stutter. Now he comes back to that thought. So for this reason, for everything I said in chapters 1 and 2, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ, for your sakes, verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Notice 
his posture. He, he kneels in humility before God, whether literally or metaphorically. His prayer posture here reflects Philippians 2.10, where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. When we approach the Father, just a little side note before we really wrestle with content at all. When we approach the Father, the glorious one, who is holy, he is other, we need to come on our knees. We need to come in humility, recognizing that we are not like him. We are not worthy to stand before a holy God. And until we get that, we can't get the rest. We'll talk more about that a little later on. But this overwhelming nature of who God is, inevitably, always, when we truly encounter him, we don't have to muster up some kind of reverence. We are dumbstruck. If we are not, then we haven't really seen God yet. But he starts out having said, this is why I'm praying. I'm kneeling before God, before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Notice that God is the source of everything. God is the source of everything. And, and Paul acknowledges this. He's saying here that, that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And if you compare various translations of this, it's a little bit of a tricky situation. The, the fatherness of all fathers is sourced by the Father. All of us derive our being, derive our existence from God. If we extend that to what we've seen throughout the scriptures, all things at all times, everywhere, derive their existence from God. We see that established in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. Paul has gone back to that over and over again. You'll see it in, in the book of Colossians when he speaks of Christ being supreme over all things, central to all things. It is through Christ and for Christ and by Christ that all things are created. That centrality of Christ in all of creation is the picture of what he's talking about here. All fathers, all families, all people derive their being. They draw their name from God. What does that mean? It means exactly what Moses wrote in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That God created us in his image. All of us bear the image of God. Every human being, no matter how distorted that picture of God is by our sin, all of us, to a person, from the moment of conception, we bear the image of the living God, the creator of all things. Everything finds its existence in him. God is the source of everything. Notice this, our ability to know embrace and reflect the reality of Christ does not come from within, but from God. Our ability to know, embrace, and reflect the reality of Christ does not come from within, but from God. Paul acknowledges that everyone and everything derives from God, and therefore, he prays here that God would grant us the power from within himself, not from within ourselves, from his glorious riches to be able to get it. 
He's not praying for physical strength, the strength to endure hardship. He does that elsewhere. He prays for those things plenty. But he's praying here for the inner strength to overcome the blindness and hardness of sin, the blindness and hardness of self, the deceptions of the enemy, the pattern of the world, so that we can truly, truly get it. So that we can, through faith, grasp this. And that through faith, Christ might dwell in us who are in Christ by grace. Which brings us to our next point, Christ in you through faith. Now notice, as he writes this, Picking up with verse 14 again. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Right, This power is not the physical power. God is strengthening us in our inner person by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. He's alluded to this uh, previously in chapter 1 especially. As he said that we are chosen and adopted and God has sealed our future, settled our future by giving us the Holy Spirit within us as a deposit, as a guarantee of our inheritance. This Holy Spirit in us is how God fills us with this power, strengthens us in our inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is significant. Notice, and you can mark this down, our position in Christ is by God's sovereign election. Christ's preeminence in us is by our trusting obedience. Our position in Christ, who we are in Christ, our identity, we are his children because he has made us this. Our position in Christ is by God's sovereign election. That was the, a big chunk of what he was talking about in chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with the, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. He chose us. He adopted us. He predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight. All of this is from God. This is the emphasis that Paul is making. It ain't me. It's God. I wouldn't be here except for God. I don't have it in me. I'm not holy. I don't have the sinlessness required to actually even desire him. So as the Lord prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will take that heart of stone that is natural to your sinful self. That was the problem in Israel. It's the problem in me. And I'll give you a heart of flesh that responds to me. So God does all of that. And now we see he's praying for God to have this power in us that, notice the flip, Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. You see, in Christ is the key phrase of this letter. It's the high point and the fulcrum. Everything that Paul says in this letter hinges on the idea of in Christ and Christus and and Christo. As we look at this idea of our position, God has placed us in Christ. But now there's a difference. Now we can 
talk about how it's used in various other places and, and there's some crossover and so on. But the picture that he's trying to give us here is that we're in Christ by God's grace, but Christ dwells in us through our faith, through our trusting obedience, right? Our position in Christ is by God's sovereign election. Christ's preeminence in us is by our trusting obedience. Here, the, here Paul shifts to the idea of Christ in us. This is a picture of Jesus holding sway over our hearts, over our lives. It is a picture of our faith expressed in obedience. Turn, if you would, to the left in your Bible to the book of John. Not very far. You know, back up past Romans, past Acts, to the book of John. And when you find John, find chapter 14. Now, those of you who are pretty familiar with the Gospel of John, you're like, oh yeah, he's going to, to verse, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No, I'm not. We're going to verses 23 and 24. Jesus has explained to them that he is the way. He has promised the Holy Spirit would come. And in response to Judas Iscariot in verse 22, Jesus replies in verse 23, anyone who loves me. Now, this is something that most of us would say. If you are a church-going person, regardless of your status before God, you would probably say, Oh yeah, I love the Lord. I, I love Jesus. I, I, I really do. And you might even be sincere in your affection, in your thoughts toward him. But Jesus puts a qualifier on it. We're not real great with qualifiers in our day. We, we have a tendency to think it's all just, you know, just grace. It's just fun and games. And I love Jesus. Jesus loves me. God is love, 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 love. Jesus said, you want to see love? Here's what it looks like. Verse 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. This is the picture that we have, a picture of obedience, faith expressed in obedience back to just past Ephesians. Hopefully you kept Ephesians marked. That's where we're staying. But a couple of pages past Ephesians, you're going past the book of Philippians into Colossians. In the midst of this fantastic letter, Colossians and Ephesians parallel each other really well. They are written about the same time, sent to a, uh, groups of people that are in fairly close proximity, probably delivered by uh, by the same person at the same time on the same trip. And as we look at this, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Man, I want to read more of this. But uh, let's, let's just back up to 21 so we have context. And you may, if you've been with us, you may recognize the echoes in this passage of what we've seen in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death 
to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from acquisition. Here's our focus. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Christ in us, not us in Christ, but Christ in us in this passage is a picture of our faith expressed in obedience. Paul is praying that we would have power from God to be able to trust in Him so that Christ would hold sway in our lives. That not only would He be Lord of all things, but He would be Lord of me in my life, in my daily walking. So that I wouldn't just be somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian. But that I would be somebody that nobody ever has to wonder about. Because it shows up in everything. That Christ is above me, beneath me, to my left, to my right. He's flowing out of me. He is the perfume of grace in my life so that the way I treat other people is governed by the nature of Christ so that everything I do at all times in my everyday real life experiences, I am reflecting the reality of Christ through relationships. When I am living in a trusting obedience to him, then that is evidence that not only have I been placed in Christ, people can debate about who's elected and who's not. That's on God's side of the curtain. God knows whom he's chosen. The question for us is, are you living in obedience through faith? Because if you are doing that, that's the indicator that you belong to him. When the child looks like the father, there's really no question. It makes it easy when we look like Jesus. Paul goes from that after recognizing God as the source of everything and, and focusing on his prayer that Christ would dwell in us through faith. He gets to this idea that he's also praying for us to comprehend and to apprehend. Now, what in the world are you talking about with these two very closely related and strange English verbs? When we're talking about comprehension and apprehension, particularly in this setting, they can be used almost interchangeably, almost synonymously in most settings in the English language. But as we're looking at this specifically, there is a, a grasping and knowing that Paul talks about here that is related yet different. Notice what he says. <clears throat> Excuse me. He has prayed so that, uh, that, that God would strengthen us with his power through his spirit and his inner being, speaking to the Ephesians and by extension to us, so that Christ, verse 17, may dwell in your hearts through faith. And notice what he says now. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, that, that's already happened, this is established in you because you're in Christ, and now Christ is dwelling in you because God has enabled you to have the faith that gives you a trusting obedience. Now, being rooted and established in love, his prayer is that, verse 18, that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This grasping and knowing 
This comprehending and apprehending means this in his prayer. The power of God enables us to understand and to embrace a love beyond our capacity to know. The power of God enables us to understand and to embrace a love beyond our capacity to know. So it's starting to come to a head now. Paul is so overwhelmed by the grace of God to us that he is he has spent two chapters now just rejoicing in God as he spells out for the Ephesians and for all who will read this letter the glorious, incomparable riches of God's grace that we who have received this grace through no effort or, or merit of our own but by God's grace alone through faith a faith that he gives us so we can't even boast about the faith it's not in any way from works or effort or religiousness. This God who has made us his, his workmanship, his poem. Now, he's praying that the power of God would enable us to understand, to get it, right? But not just to get it, not just to, to say, wow, I see. And that's awesome, that's amazing but to know it, to take hold of it, that it might be ours. Not just that you would understand that you could sit in some ivory tower and debate theology and have all the, the great perfect points of doctrine so that you can explain to someone really, really well what the love of God is about. There are lots of people who can do that who don't know that grace for themselves. His prayer is that we would get it, and we would get it so completely that it would overwhelm us. And that we would say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours, Lord. Take me, save me, own me, shape me, fill me. God, I just want to glorify you. I can't imagine a life other than that. And everything else that we have known the pleasures of this life, the deeply important things of our moment become so small and pale and impotent and pointless compared to the overwhelming, all-surpassing, incomparable, indescribable love of the glory of God being poured out, not in the wrath that we deserve, but in the grace that flows from his character to those he has made his own. When we get it, it is a knockdown kind of thing. I'm going to jump ahead to what I'm going to say later. I'm going to say it now because I can't help it. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at the first, first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 6. Where in the world is Isaiah? If you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find the Psalms. Then flip to the right a little bit. It's pretty easy to find in that general area because Isaiah is one of the bigger books in the Old Testament. So find the Psalms, move to the right, find Isaiah. If you go to Jeremiah, you went a little too far. Isaiah, we're going to look at chapter 6. Now when you find it, I'm going to... I'm going to look it up here myself so you've got time to find it while I'm chatting. When you find it, 
what you're going to see here in this passage is Isaiah describing his receiving the call from God to be his prophet, his mouthpiece in Israel. And I, I would love, man, we could just do a whole sermon or a whole sermon series really even on the glory of God in this passage and what's going on in Israel. The king has died. The king has died. Israel has lost their king. There is a void, a vacuum there. And in that moment, when the king has died and Israel is, if you will, leaderless, it's now that Isaiah receives a vision of God the king seated on the throne. Let's read Isaiah 6, verse 1 and following. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It's this picture of God's glory filling the temple. Notice his throne is not in a palace. His throne over Jerusalem, over Israel, over the world is in the temple. Above him were seraphim. That, That word means burning ones. These are angelic beings that are pictured, if we can even comprehend in any way this divine entity, they're they're pictured as beings of fire. These holy angels with a burning nature. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. These Four of the six wings are used in humility before God. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, Isaiah is receiving this vision, right? Put yourself in his shoes. It's not just like a little dream, but, but if you can imagine your most real dream you've ever had, that dream where you wake up with your heart beating fast because you thought it was real. It seems so real. You're in the midst of it. And you wake up in a sweat because it's so intense. Isaiah is living this. Not a dream in sleep, but a vision from God revealing himself. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, these holy angels crying out, holy, 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 at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Notice his response. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's as if he's dead. That's fully his anticipation. No one can see God and live. And in this vision, Isaiah's like, I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm a dead man. Because I'm impure. And I'm standing in the presence of perfect purity and holiness. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I'm going to make this as short as I can, but I'm not really great at that. 
This is a picture of God reaching in and cleansing Isaiah of the sin that separates him from this holy God. Isaiah has nothing to offer. And God, from his own holiness on the, offer, on the altar that is, that is there in his presence, the holiness of God is so hot that the flaming angel has to use tongs to get it. And the holiness of God, administered by God's servant, coming from God, all God, not one bit Isaiah, touches his lips, cleanses his impurity, atones for his sin. He was struck dead in his mind a moment before this. Because the holiness of God and the unholiness of himself. If we could enter into this for just a moment and encounter the living God as he is, I just think we could never again go to church as just going to church. I think we could never again look at Christianity as a thing, as a religion, some thing that I muster up that I try to adhere to a set of beliefs and and live by a certain code of ethics. I think if we could just for a moment get the slightest glimpse, the tiniest taste of what Isaiah is experiencing here, I'm dead before a holy God. But he in his infinite mercy, has cleansed me of my impurities, my sin against him. I think our view of reality would have to be changed. Dumbstruck. Sin atoned for. And notice his reaction here. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I! Send me! Pick me, God! Pick me! Let me go! Let me go tell everybody! Why? Because he gets it. And if we get it, man, we don't need no shouting preacher up here trying to get us all riled up. If we get it, The riling up comes from within. Nobody had to tell you to sweat and shake when you had that very real dream that shook you to your core. Nobody had to tell you that. Nobody had to tell you as an older person who was able to take things in when you stand at the Grand Canyon that you should be in awe. You are in awe. If you're not in awe, you're asleep or your face is in your phone screen. The baby doesn't have the capacity. You do. And when you get it, you don't have to work it up. We went to Niagara Falls, and I'm standing next to the falls there, and I'm like, this is astonishing. I mean, this is huge. I'm from Three Oaks. We got the Galeen River. It's not the same, right? I've been to to Quamanan Falls. That's awesome. It's not the same. This is overwhelming to me. I've shared this story before, and I'll share it again. This picture that we have in Isaiah, this is the fear of God, overcome then by the love of God. We talked about this the other day in our our Bible study. 
In Proverbs, we're told in several places that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But notice, it's not the end of wisdom. It is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning. Until we get that this is the God we're standing before. And the only suitable thing for us, unholy wretches, before this God is death and damnation. Until we get that, we don't understand who we're talking about. And that should, if we're awake, rock us to the core. But when you realize that this omnipotent being is my daddy, he's on my side, and the arms that are able to save and to judge the earth are wrapped around me in love, it's a whole different kind of awe. And the fear that was the beginning of wisdom is superseded by the spirit of love that drives out fear. Because God is on my side. I was fixing a fence in our pasture, as I said, I've shared this before. And very quietly, our bull came up behind me. I didn't know it. I'm just sitting there. And he's just checking things out. We named him Sweetness because he had a great disposition and a very high voice like my hero, Walter Payton. And Sweetness comes up. He's about 2,500 pounds, massive, just this big, massive bull, thick neck. His head probably weighed as much as I do, you know, just, just big. He had no animosity. He had no anger. He just stood there making sure I was doing something good. And when I perceived him behind me, I turned and I just about soiled myself and had a heart attack. I apologize for the crassness. But that's the reality of it. Now I know that this bull has a very docile nature. I did not have a choice but to fear him because of the immensity of his being. And this is a slab of beef. We're talking about the holy God. You can't encounter God and not be in awe. So if we're not in awe, we haven't seen God yet. Back to Ephesians. This is what Paul is praying for. That we would comprehend and apprehend the vastness, not only of the majesty of God, but of his love for us. Again, Note this, you can mark it down in your programs. The power of God enables us to understand and to embrace a love beyond our capacity to know. When we get it, when we comprehend it, and we apprehend it and make it ours, then Paul's prayer continues. He says, I'm praying that, that God would enable you, he would empower you through his spirit, strengthen you in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, through trusting obedience. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. Notice that everything he does here in, in Ephesians is couched in the fullness of the church, not individual believers, but the corporate body life together to grasp 
How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ in verse 19. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to all the fullness of God. Mark this. God fills us to overflowing through the fullness of Christ in his church. God fills us to overflowing through the fullness of Christ in his church. If you glance back at Ephesians chapter 1, the last verse of that chapter, it's, it's the second half of the sentence that begins in verse 22. But having said in 22 that God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. He's the Lord of everything. And specifically he points out here he's the Lord of the church. What, why is that significant? Because the church, he says in verse 23, is his body. The fullness of him, the fullness of Christ, who fills everything in every way. Turn to Colossians again, chapter 2, just slightly to the right of where we are in Ephesians. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 9. Paul says to the church at Colossae, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. God's fullness present in the incarnated Christ, in Jesus. Verse 10, And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This is the picture that he's giving us here. He's praying that we would be filled to all the fullness of God. The fullness of God is in Christ. The fullness of Christ is in the church. This is the beauty and the power. If you think that you can just do your own thing in your Christian walk, me and Jesus got our own thing going. You know, I, I don't need the church. I love Jesus. I don't know so much about the church thing. I'm not too into organized religion, which just pretty obviously leaves you with disorganized religion. But anyway, as, as we're working through this idea, we need to dump this Lone Ranger Christian mentality. God interacts with his people both individually and corporately. And you're not a member of the body until you deal personally with Christ. But once you deal personally with Christ, he makes you part of the body. If you cut off your arm and your arm is separate from your body, your arm will not continue to live. The same is true for us as Christ followers. The power of Christ flows through his body, the church, into each member of his body. So if we are to be filled with the fullness of God, we get that in the church. God fills us to overflowing through the fullness of Christ in his church. This is why we're called to gather to encourage one another. So that it's not just about singing songs, this consumer mentality of Christianity. I'm going to come to a, basically a concert and a lecture. And I'm going to go home and come back next week for another fill-up of my spiritual gas tank. Man, that's not what this is about. It's about being in this together. That we are the body. The fullness of God in Christ. The fullness of Christ in the church. And we in the world. 
display the fullness of God as we overflow with the joy of knowing Him. Which brings me to the last point, the glory of God. When we grasp the wonder of God's power and His grace to us in Christ, we rejoice in glorifying Him. When we grasp the wonder of God's power and His grace to us in Christ, we rejoice in glorifying Him. This really is Paul's prayer, this section coming to its final point. What he wants for us to get in all of this is just how beautiful and amazing God is. And his prayer for us is not that we can just feel better. We, we get stuck in this therapeutic, self-help kind of mentality about church and, and, and Christ. And, you know, we just pray for our needs. And, you know, if I'm sick or my finances are tough or my marriage is in a bad spot or, or whatever it is, I'm going to pray for God to fix my stuff. God, can you, can you fix my stuff? But what Paul's praying for isn't, isn't that kind of filling. It's not that kind of, of power in your inner being. It's power to know God, to grasp the fullness of his love, and to be filled with the fullness of his love, knowing that I was dead in my sin, and by God's grace he made me alive in Christ. And not only me, but all of us who are in him. And there's nothing that divides us. Because it's all so small compared to the greatness of God and the glory of His grace to us in Christ. So he culminates it with this fantastic doxology. And I would, I would encourage you in this, in this beautiful last two verses to make that your memory verse. My daughter pointed out, Daddy, that's memory verses. This is your scripture memory passage, if you will go with that. But commit this to your heart. Repeat it over and over. Say it to yourself. Post it on your bathroom mirror and recite it as you brush your teeth. Get this into your mind, into your heart. This is the culmination of what Paul is saying here. Expressing the idea that when we grasp the wonder of God's power and His grace to us in Christ, we rejoice in glorifying Him. Here's what he says. Now, to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power, that is at work within us, not just me as an individual, but us as the body, to Him be glory in the church, in the saints, in His people, His holy ones set apart, called together, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the experience of all who truly encounter God when we see Him. When, when we truly see Him as Isaiah did, we are awestruck, overcome. And when we have encountered God and been cleansed by Him, received His grace, we are filled with exuberance to display His glory to the world. Whether we're talking about the psalmists, the prophets, or the apostles, 
The power of God and the grace of God overwhelm them all and drive everything in their lives. What God has done for us, in, for us in Christ causes those who know Him to rejoice in glorifying Him. It is from our overflowing fullness in Him. I'm reminded of, of John Piper's thoughts on what he calls Christian hedonism, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I would say the converse of that is at least is true. That we are most satisfied in God when He is glorified in us. The overwhelming nature of this is huge. Let's read that, that passage together, that, that memory verse passage that you have before you in verses 20 and 21. Read it with me. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power, that is at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we close this service today, may all glory be to You through us, not in spite of us, Lord, but in Your church, in Your collected people that You have called and set apart that You have chosen and adopted and made holy by Your sovereign grace. Father, may we rejoice in displaying Your glory, in reflecting Your reality to the world in the same way that Jesus Christ glorifies You in heaven and on earth throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.